0: But as Christians, we don't seize the day to check items off of our bucket list. We're not seizing the day to somehow attain our culture's misguided ideas of fulfillment. We're not seizing the day so that we can somehow be more happy, as if that's the end goal of all things. We're not seizing the day for those worldly things. What I'm talking about, what the carpe diem of the gospels is, and the New Testament writers, and the message of John the Baptist, and all those that went before him, what their carpe diem is, is this, that now is the time. Now is the time, and today is the day to make straight the way for the Lord. John's call and the call of the New Testament writers and Jesus himself is this. It's prepare the way in your own heart and your own life. Prepare the way in your own heart and your own life for the coming of Jesus. Sweep away the debris, all the clutter in your life. If you can imagine a cluttered closet or a cluttered room or anything, right? A living room that has toys and all kinds of stuff strewn about and you're barely able to walk through it. That's the thing is clear away the debris, organize the closet, get rid of the clutter. And the clutter and the stuff that would be a mess are all things in your life that would keep you from being 100% devoted to Jesus. We all have those things. But this call, this carpe diem is that today is the day to make a runway for Jesus to land. My point is just this idea that Jesus is coming back again. We don't know when. But we're told over and over again to have a sense of urgency about it. And when he lands, we'd be wise to make sure there's no debris on the runway. In 2015, or 2015, 15 years ago, uh, I was serving as a youth pastor at a local church. And uh, we had a rather large youth group. Uh, It was specifically large in the uh, junior high uh, portion of the youth group. It was so large, in fact, uh, that on Wednesday nights when we had our youth group meetings, we had to have two separate sessions: one just for seventh grade, and one just for eighth grade. So seventh grade would be from six to seven thirty. There'd be kind of a really messy, <laughs> short turnaround time, and then eighth grade would be from essentially seven thirty-five till right around nine o'clock. Each session had about two hundred and twenty-five kids in it, and so that, uh, you know, because of that, uh, I didn't know all the kids' names. Uh, 450 kids. I love uh, to know every kid's name if possible and their face, but that's just simply not possible uh, in that scenario. Uh, This is before uh, my son uh, was born, and so sometimes my wife Carrie and I would be uh, at the mall on a Friday night walking around. Maybe we'd grab the bite to eat and we're just kind of uh, killing some time, and there'd be a group of junior high kids uh, that would come up or that would walk past us and say, Hey, Pastor Josh! And I'd be like, Hey, kids! Good to see you, because I didn't, I didn't know uh, a lot of their names. Um, but there were, of course, even in a group that large, there were certain kids uh, that I had great relationship with and uh, was particularly close with and was fond of, and it just, um, it was awesome. Most of them uh, were eighth graders. I used to even tell the eighth graders in their session, hey guys, I like the seventh graders, but I love you guys. Uh, and just had a good relationship. Well, there was one particular gal uh, in, the, in the eighth grade group um, who uh, was a little unique uh, for, for an eighth grader. Um, you know, most of the time in junior high youth group, kids are showing up, and they're just like, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a mess, and that's fun, uh, but they're not really concerned uh, with all kinds of, you know, outward appearance stuff. They're showing up in, like, sweatpants, and, and who knows what. It's no big deal. But this particular gal, she was always just dressed to the T. Uh, she was always uh, hair perfect, uh, makeup perfect. Perfect, like fashion, just on point, uh, which was uh, again very unusual, even for like a youth group night. And I got the impression, and I'd heard from different people, that this was how she was all the time. Uh, in fact, she was actually named after a supermodel. Uh, her name was Elle. If you remember the supermodel Elle McPherson, she was actually named after her. And then she had this persona that was very similar uh, to that. It was just, it's just different for eighth grade. You don't, you don't see that at least back then. And so. Uh, she was always very proper. She was very quiet. She wasn't the kind of girl, we'll put it this way, she wasn't the kind of girl when I was like, hey, guys, we're going to have a game right now. Who wants to see who can eat a tub of Cool Whip the fastest? Right? She wasn't the kind of person who was going to be like, me, me. Not not her thing. So very uh, put together all the time, very prim, very proper, very concerned with outward appearance and fashion. Uh, so the story goes that uh, roughly early 2007, um, she had a little brother who was right around four, four years old, I believe, three or four years old, and it was his birthday. And uh, the family had rented out um, like a, a hotel kind of party room, and that came with the the pool uh, at the hotel. And so uh, Elle was there, and, and she wasn't uh, she wasn't participating in the party, so she wasn't swimming. She wasn't in swimming suit or anything like that. She was dressed as she normally would be, while all the, her little brother's friends and some other people in the family and relatives where they're uh, you know, swimming and, and having a good time. So as the party goes on, um, they're kind of getting ready. to. I don't know if it was to open gifts or eat cake. It was one of those two. And so they're kind of trying to gather everybody. And somebody makes the comment, hey, where's the birthday boy? Where's the birthday boy? And so everybody's kind of like, hey, you know where is he? And they're, and they're looking around. Uh, and then somebody looks in absolute worst nightmare. Uh, they see him at the very bottom of the deep end, on the bottom of the deep end. Uh, like underwater. And so uh, El, it's her little brother. Uh, keep in mind, very prim, very proper. All put together, hair, makeup, clothes, all this stuff. Uh, as soon as she sees it, head first dives in uh, to the bottom of the deep end, is able to grab him Uh, And she ends up pulling him up to the surface and basically heaves him uh, onto uh, the, the edge there of the pool. I don't believe there was anybody there who was able to administer CPR at the time, but they'd already called an ambulance. So the ambulance shows up, and they're trying to get this kid to breathe, and he's not. He's not breathing. They get him in the ambulance, and on the way to the hospital, they're performing CPR, and he's not really responding at all to it. They get him to the emergency room. It just so happens that a really good friend of mine uh, at the time uh, was the attending physician in the ER, and went to our church, and so uh, knew this family. And so uh, this little boy gets there, and, and my friend and his team uh, they begin to continue to do the stuff, and uh, the little boy almost miraculously, my friend said, lives, begins to breathe, and and he comes back to life, uh, and uh, and he, and he's good. So today we conclude our teaching series, uh, Building the House. Uh, It's one we've been in for quite a long time now, a lot longer than we even expected, but it just kept going in really good ways. So this message as I close this series off is is one that has been burning in my heart for uh, probably right around a year, since at least the beginning of this year. Um, If I was given the opportunity, not that this will ever happen, but if I was given the opportunity to preach one message that every church in our country would hear, uh, this is the message that I would choose. Um, With that being said, I want to issue a disclaimer (laughs) that this message uh, carries a level of intensity which may exceed even my own norm. Uh, If you remember last week where Jordan threw me under the bus uh, regarding this series where he said he sometimes sits over there and is like, Josh, geez, take it easy. I was sitting there, and many of you looked at me, and I was sitting there thinking, He has no idea what I'm about to preach on next Sunday, exactly. And so, or so, uh, you know, I, but it does, it carries a level of intensity. And, and there's times, if I'm honest, where I wish I could just calm down, where I wish I could just chill. Uh, but to quote the great poet and, and prophet Zach De La Roca, uh, he said this He said, Lord, I wish I could be peaceful, but there can be no sequel. Lord, I wish I could be peaceful, but there can be no sequel. Keeping those things in mind. What I want to talk about this morning as we cap off our Building the House series is this. I want to talk about urgency. I want to talk about urgency. The definition of urgency is this. It's importance requiring swift action. Urgency Dictionary definition is importance or of the utmost importance requiring swift action. I'm going to be using a lot of different texts this morning, but the primary one that I want to launch from and the one that I really want to be seared into your hearts and minds at the end of this message this morning comes from uh, the first chapter of John, and don't put that verse on the screen quite yet. I want to give you just a little bit of context. Uh, The Gospel of John is my favorite of the Gospels, and the first chapter of John is probably my favorite. Uh, It's beautifully poetic in the way that it's written. Uh, I think it's just powerful. And then it also includes one of my favorite characters in the Bible, or figures, I should say, in the Bible, uh, John the Baptist. And this verse that I want to share with you here in a second to give context for it. John has been out by the Jordan River and he is preaching uh, repentance and a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it says that all the people from the cities were coming out and flocking out to John to hear his message. And we know that John was a bit of a crazy figure. He wore clothes made of camel's hair and he ate locusts and wild honey as his primary diet. And he was an extreme kind of dude. And he's out there, and all these people are coming to him. And they're being touched by God. And then the people in power, the religious establishment at the time, and you can call them whatever you want, the overseers, the pastors, whatever, the ones who really were, uh, you know, in places of authority. They heard what John was doing, and John was pretty rogue. So they go out, and they want to figure out and establish what's going on with this guy. Their motives were, were mixed at best. I would say, but they want to know who he is, who are you to, to preach this way, to be able to believe that you can baptize in this way outside of the church, you know, God forbid, outside of our systematic, systemic norms, who are you to think that you can do this, and so they ask him a series of questions. Are you this person? Are you this person? Are you this? And then each time, he responds with no. And they say, well, then, if you're known to those people, who are you? And this is his answer in John 1.23. It says that he replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. He says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So John's very clear on who he is not, and he's very clear on who he is. I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And John tells us that he's that John the Baptist is quoting Isaiah. So in Isaiah, the text that John the Baptist uses here is from 40, Isaiah 40, verse 3. And it's, of course, a prophetic passage written hundreds of years before John the Baptist's arrival that foretold his coming as the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. And it says this in Isaiah 40, verse three, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. So some people read this wrong and they think it says a voice of one calling in the wilderness and then prepare the way. No, it goes like this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, John the Baptist was the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets, and there had been centuries before him where God had been silent to the people of Israel. It's what we call the intertestamental period. It's between the end of the Old Testament, essentially, and the beginning of the New. And depending on who you ask, there were were at least, though, hundreds of years where God had not spoken through his prophets as he previously used to. It was silence. It was a dark time. It was when the nation of Israel, they just weren't doing super well. And then John shows up in the New Testament, and he carries on this tradition of the Old Testament prophets, all the ones that went before him. Ezekiel and Isaiah, and you can probably, if you know the the Bible song, you know Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. He goes through all these Old Testament prophets, and he continues on in this tradition. And this tradition of Old Testament prophets was really similar, although they ministered at different times, in different scenarios. Their message was essentially always the same, which is turn from your wicked ways and turn towards God. It was always prepare away. As Jordan talked about in his communion, often the call was to remember. Your God has done all these things for you, and you've forgotten those things. I need you to remember. I need you to turn away from false idols from false gods and turn back to the God who parted the Red Sea, who delivered you out of the hand of Pharaoh, who did all these things. I need you to do that. And so John the Baptist comes carrying on this line of Old Testament prophets, but in a New Testament context, which he didn't know at the time. He just knew who he was and what his job was. John's message and his mission was to call people, the people of Israel at this time, and anybody else who wanted to take part. In his message, excuse me, and his mission was to call people to prepare their hearts to receive Jesus. To get ready for Jesus's arrival, his first coming, the thing that had been foretold by the prophets for a very long time. John was the forerunner, and he talked about this. He said, as he baptized people, I baptize you with water. But there's one who is coming soon, And I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, meaning that he will come into your life. And he will, if you so desire, if you will allow him to do so, he will come in and he will fill you up with the presence of God and empower you to walk in his ways to pursue his kingdom, to be single-minded, he will do that. And as he does that, the fire, his refining fire will also come into your life and burn away all the non-necessities, all the superfluous things, all the excess, all the things that would keep you from fulfilling your destiny in Christ. So he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and it'll be beautiful and powerful. And he's also going to baptize you with fire, which in the moment may not feel the best. But when he does, you're going to be purified. So John's the forerunner to this. He's saying, prepare the way, right? Prepare the way in the wilderness, in the places of barrenness in your life, in the places where there seems to be no water and no shelter, where things are hard, in the wilderness, not in the fruitful times, in the wilderness, in the middle of this struggle and pain and hardship and oppression. And when you don't know which end is up, in the middle of that, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord in your life. Make straight the highway for the Lord. And whether you know it or not, every New Testament author, literally every New Testament author, and Jesus himself, who's quoted, of course, in the four Gospels, every New Testament author and Jesus himself kept John's message alive by emphasizing the importance of preparing the way for the Lord's second coming. John's job was to prepare the people at the time for Jesus' first coming. The New Testament authors and Jesus himself, after he shows up on the scene, continue over and over again immediately to prepare us, to call us to be prepared for Jesus' second coming. In fact, that's half of what the season of Advent, which begins next Sunday, is all about. Oftentimes people think that Advent is primarily about looking forward to and remembering uh, the birth of Jesus. And that's actually true, but it's only half of it. Advent is a 50-50 split. We are called to remember the original arrival of Jesus and, and remember his birth. But the other half of Advent is that we prepare our hearts. We prepare the way for his second coming. Advent means essentially arrival. So we're preparing for his arrival We look forward to the return of Jesus, his second coming where he's promised that he'll establish his kingdom once and for all. So with that being said, let's talk for a minute um, about the end times. Actually, what I want to talk about is just um, an area of theological study that's known as eschatology. I don't expect that you would know what that word means, nerdy word, uh, that I like to throw around every now and again to show how smart um, I'm not. But um, but it is an easy way to, to, to just talk about uh, the end times without sounding super creepy. And so uh, eschatology, what eschatology is is this, it's a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world. A branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world. Most of you, if I say end times, you know immediately what I'm talking about because the reality is that uh, whether you know it was eschatology or the end times or whatever you want to call it, people love to obsess over this stuff. Mostly they love to obsess over uh, the book of Revelation, which they believe is where all the keys to somehow understanding the end times uh, or to landing them into a certain eschatological view are found. Right? People love to obsess over this stuff. Movies have been made. Terrible movies. Terrible movies have been made that dramatize very specific eschatological positions. Don't watch any of them, okay? They're ridiculous. People, and I get it. Let me just say this really quick. Eschatology uh, in, in its nature is actually important because it informs us. It's not about landing on a certain eschatological view, whether it's pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or some other version of that. It's not about landing there, but it informs us that we are part of a story. That we are part of a story that has a very distinct beginning. That now has a very distinct middle. And that will have a very distinct end. Of course, we know that the end is actually no end for us but that it still does have a climactic point. It's important to know that we are in a story. And why it's important to know that we're in a story is because it also gives us direction. It also gives us a way to live our lives. It also points us, if we're willing to see and hear, it gives us a place to land. Because the reality is no matter which eschatological position or view you subscribe to, if you are true to the Gospels, if you're true to the New Testament writings, the core truth of those things all remain the same. And it's this, and this is super important today. We're going to keep going, but this is super important. Well, the truth is that we are always, we are always near the end. We're always one day closer to Jesus coming back than we were yesterday. Right? We are always near the end. We are always living in the end times. How do I know that? Because Jesus says, well, no one knows the hour except for the Father. So if that's true, then we're always <laughs> on in the end times. Okay? We're always near the end. We're always living in the end times. And our call is always the same. Be obedient. Be faithful. Endure trials. And live your life fully for Jesus regardless of the cost. If people want to obsess over end times, views, or whatever, that's fine. All I want to know is, are they doing this? Regardless of your eschatology, are you being obedient, faithful, enduring trials, living your life fully for Jesus, regardless of the cost? With that in mind, we're always near the end. We're always in the end times. And I'm going to go through a bunch of scripture here in a bit that's going to really... Help explain that more in depth. But with that in mind, we absolutely, we must, must, must have a sense of urgency in our spirit. We must have a sense of urgency in our spirit. Carpe diem. Such a great movie. Such a great scene. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys, says Robin Williams, Mr. Keating. Carpe diem, seize the day. But as Christians, and we should take this view, but as Christians, we don't seize the day to check items off of our bucket list. We're not seizing the day to somehow attain our culture's misguided ideas of fulfillment. We're not seizing the day so that we can somehow be more happy. As if that's the goal of all things. We're not seizing the day for those worldly things. What I'm talking about, what the carpe diem of the Gospels is, and the New Testament writers, and the message of John the Baptist, and all those that went before him, what their carpe diem is, is this. That now is the time. Now is the time. And today is the day to make straight the way for the Lord. Now is the time and today is the day to make straight the way for the Lord. The call is this if you don't if that sounds a bit abstract to you, let me get really specific or more specific at least. John's call and the call of the New Testament writers and Jesus himself is this, it's prepare the way in your own heart and your own life. Prepare the way in your own heart and your own life for the coming of Jesus. Sweep away the debris, all the clutter in your life. If you can imagine a cluttered closet or a cluttered room or anything, right? A living room that has toys and all kinds of stuff strewn about and you're barely able to walk through it. That's the thing is clear away the debris, organize the closet, get rid of the clutter and the clutter and the stuff that would be a mess or all things in your life that would keep you from being 100% devoted to Jesus. It's not even necessarily sin stuff, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but it's just things that would get in the way that would prevent you from being awake and aware and sensitive to the age that we're living in and having a sense of urgency, the things that would dull your senses, that would cause apathy in you, that would make you numb, and gosh, we all have those. And I'm right there. I'm not preaching this at you, and I hope you can feel that. We all have those things, but this call, this carpe diem, is that today is the day to make a runway for Jesus to land. You think about when a plane comes in and all the things that have to go into ensuring that that plane lands safely. The runway has to be cleared. There's guiding lights that come in. There's an air traffic controller that's steering it in the right direction and don't run too far with the analogy, but my point is just this idea that Jesus is coming back again. We don't know when, but we're told over and over again to have a sense of urgency about it. And when he lands, we'd be wise to make sure there's no debris on the runway, to make sure that all of this stuff isn't somehow messing with it in our own lives. Today is the day. James 4, and this is, we're gonna go through a bunch of texts now in a row, I think five of them. James 4, 13 through 14, James speaks to this. He's, he's got some, he's, if you talk about somebody that had a sense of urgency and who didn't mess around, <laughs> who had strong language and strong things, not that the other New Testament writers didn't, but James is right at the top of that list. And this James was the brother of Jesus, if you didn't know that. And he says this in chapter 4, 13 through 14. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, We will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes like Mr. Keating says in the movie, take a look at all of these guys. They had hopes and dreams and desires, ways they wanted to live their life, but now they're pushing up daffodils. Did they ever fulfill those things? Did they ever realize the fullness of their potential? And we're taking it about it in a Christian sense, not in some, again, abstract or cultural type thing. We're talking about for Jesus. James says it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't last all that long. You know, in our, just in our staff here at, at New Point, we've had a lot of loss in the past several years. Pastor Jordan has lost both his grandparents very recently and his uncle not long ago, who he was super close with. My wife and I, we've lost both of her parents in the last couple of years. Emily and Kate lost their dad very recently. That's just the, that's just the four of us. And this, is, this has happened in a year that I, it's just been on my mind a lot that we don't know. That it is short. And even though all those people, most of all those people were able to live long lives, it still was like the blink of an eye. You don't know. And because you don't know, you should have a sense of urgency when it comes to the things of the kingdom. Jesus tells a story about this. Again, this is Jesus telling a story about this and it's kind of a weird story for us. We don't understand it culturally like they would have, so I'll do my best to just explain it briefly. But he tells this parable, which is a story, which are stories that he would tell uh, that don't have a straightforward meaning necessarily to the people or they're, that takes some thought, requires some thought. And he tells this story of what he calls the 10, ten virgins, ten, the 10 young women who were single is basically what it comes down to back then. And he says there were ten these 10 gals and there was a suitor there was a a guy who was looking for a wife who needed a wife and time was set for him to show up he was looking for a bride he wasn't sure necessarily who he would choose and they weren't sure when he'd get there which makes a lot of sense back then right because they didn't have flight schedules delay like they didn't know he's on this road, and, and who knows? It's a parable, but it would have made sense to them culturally. So you, and they don't know when he's going to show up. It could be today. It could be a couple days. He could have gotten delayed because his donkey broke down or, like, whatever it was that happened, right? It, something like that. And he says that of the, 10, of the ten young women, five of them were wise and five were not. Five of them made sure at all times that they had oil in their lamps, which was key to be able to light your lamp when there's no electricity, to go out and meet the bridegroom, to be able to find your way. It says five of them were wise. They had oil in their lamps at all times. Other five were not wise. They were like, ah, you know, it'll work out, or, or whatever their attitude was. It was basically apathetic at best. They're taking their chances. And then it says, all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, this, this man, this bridegroom, as he's called, he shows up. And the five wise young women who had oil in their lamps, they're able to light their lamps and go out to meet him. And the five who were unwise, it says they pleaded with the others, like, hey, give us some oil for our lamps. Like, help us out. And they're like, no, you had every chance. Like, we told you that you should do this. And so they go out, and the five who were unwise some, Jesus used some strong language, but they were, uh, not to use another bad movie name, but they were left behind. That wasn't in my notes. I'll probably regret saying it later. But then Jesus says this at the conclusion to the story. He's talking about, of course, you understand he himself as the bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ. And he says this as a warning. He says, therefore, Matthew 25, 13, therefore keep Watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch because you do not know the day of the hour or the hour. Keep your lamps lit. Don't be apathetic. Don't hope it's gonna happen. Don't get lazy. Keep watch. So James says your life is a mist. You don't know how long you have, and you don't know what's going on. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus says. Be prepared at all times. Have a sense of urgency. Be aware of conditions. Another text from 2 Peter that should be a little, this should be sobering to us. And this is the kind of stuff that is so often ignored. Excuse me. So often ignored and shouldn't be. This should sober us and help us understand what's going on and cultivate a sense of urgency in us. 2 Peter 1 10 through 11, he's writing and he says this Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. He's talking about your salvation. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Another text that I don't have on the screen that's similar to this is where Paul talks about, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not something to take lightly. It's not something where you can go, well, when I was 11, I prayed a prayer, and and that was it. I'm good now. I can do whatever I want. I I wouldn't take my chances with that personally because there's nothing in the New Testament that supports that, and there's a lot of things that support the opposite of that. This is Peter, knew Jesus really well, father of the church. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. What is he talking about? He's talking about the same thing that John the Baptist called the people to when they came out, which is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you say you're in Jesus, if you say that you are a Christian, you might want to continue to live like that. You might want to work towards that. You might want to make every effort in that direction. James, to quote him again, this isn't on the screen, James says essentially the same thing to people who aren't making every effort, who aren't working out their salvation in fear and trembling, who have just assumed because they have a certain position or they've gone to church or you name your thing, that they're all good. And he says, you believe there's one God? Good. I always say that like this. Do you believe there's one God? Congratulations. Congratulations. You know what? Even the demons believe that. And at least they tremble in fear. You believe there's one God. You're, not even, you're living your life like nothing's going to happen. The demons at least know their end is coming. You're walking about unaware with no sense of urgency. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, I, as a prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4.1, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you, and this word urge in the Greek is like, it's, our, our urge here it just doesn't really convey the meaning. I implore you, I beg you, I plead with you, I like pour everything like, like almost like I'm doing today. Like, let's get after it. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You've been called sons and daughters of the Most High God, right? Receiving an inheritance that can't be shaken. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You are his ambassadors. I'm just urging you to walk into that, step into that. Have a sense of urgency. Have a sense of awareness of the reality of the brevity of your life and that you don't know what's going to happen. That Jesus could come back at any point. You might want to have your lamp lit. You might want to be found doing what you're supposed to be doing when he shows up. Two more. Getting close to the end here. 2 Timothy 2.4. This is Paul again writing to Timothy, young apostle young church leader, and he says this to Timothy. I I love this text. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. I think you understand what he's saying here. Right? Remember the old hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers? Right, I don't. I just remember the name all of a sudden. But I know there was one called that. But what he's saying is this. You have a calling. You have a mission that you've been given. And Paul loved to use athletic and military analogies when it came to living as a Jesus follower. He says, no one who is serving as a soldier messes around with civilian stuff. He talks in other places about friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Paul says, I've been crucified to the world, and the world long ago was crucified to me. Meaning, like, when I became in Christ, like, all that stuff, all the worldly pursuits, all the things, status and money and whatever it might be for you, he's like, all that stuff died. And he's like, because it died to me, the world could care less about me now either. I don't care because I'm not caught up in the nonsense. No one serving as a soldier gets caught up in civilian affairs. Prepare the way in your hearts, in your life. Make a runway. Make it straight for the arrival of the Lord. What is it in your life where you are entangled in civilian affairs, where you are caught up in stuff that has nothing to do with the kingdom? It may not even be sin necessarily in the classical way that we think of it, which I'll explain here as I close in a minute. But it may be things that are impeding you, that are distracting you. They're civilian affairs. Who the heck cares? Why does that matter? The last one, Hebrews 12, 1. Hebrews 11 is a hall of fame of faith where the writer of Hebrews goes through and lists all these amazing people that have lived their lives for Jesus. Jesus. And then at the end of Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, obviously new chapter, the therefore he's talking about in light of all this stuff, the way these people lived, that they were your models. And he says this in Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people that have come before us that he had named that have given us a model from which to live our lives that have shown us the way, that have shown us what it means to live as a soldier who doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs, that shows us what it is like to prepare the way. He says, and therefore, because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin. See how he makes a distinction? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin. So he's talking about what I just said, two different things. There are things that hinder us that aren't necessarily sin. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Do you feel entangled today? Do you feel entangled by whether it's sin in your life, and it very well could be, or are things that are hindering you? The command is to throw off those things. Not to pick at them little by little, right? Not to make a deal with them. To throw them off to get rid of them. Let us throw these things off. Prepare the way. We have to have a sense of urgency about this stuff. We can't mess around anymore. The time is short. Let us throw this stuff off. How do we do this, okay? So you've heard me talk about all this stuff. How do we do this? I would say that today, right now, 11.24 a.m. on November 21st, 2021, It is time to take stock, right here and right now, right here and right now. It's time to take stock. To use a sailing analogy, it's time to batten down the hatches. It's time to shore things up. It's time to shore up your heart. In many cases here this morning, it may be time to repent. It may be time to just good old-fashioned repentance. question is repent of what exactly let me just clarify those couple things the first thing that you may need to repent of this morning are sins of commission sins of commission commission if you're caught up in something that's got a hold on you if you're entangled by sin by active habitual sin in your life if you're caught up in that and you've been holding on to it for some reason this morning is the morning to let it go and to get free. Not tomorrow. No deals with it. Today. If you're caught up in something that's got a hold on you, today is the day. Let me add a bit to this. If you're here this morning and you showed up and you're not sure why you're here exactly, now you're regretting it, <laughs> after all I've talked about. Fair. It's fair. I, I get it. Um, and you don't know Jesus. You've just been going through the motions. Like, you might have been coming here even for a while. I don't know, or a long time. But you've just been going through the religious motions, checking a box, showing up because it adds some morality to your family in some way. Whatever. That's not Christianity. That's not getting after Jesus. So, it's time to repent of that and and give your life to Jesus this morning. The second thing are sins of omission. Sins of omission. These are things you've left undone, things you haven't done to take you way back to the beginning of my message. There are people drowning on any number of levels. There are people at the bottom of the deep end, not breathing. You can take that metaphor, go with it wherever you want, but there are people who drown, are drowning on any number of levels and far too often Far too often in the church, and I'm just talking about here for this morning, we are more concerned with our outfits and our hair and our makeup, metaphorically speaking, of course, ladies, than we are about diving in. What always amazed me, and I talked to Elle after that story, and she's very quiet, and it was just cool to talk to her. What's so cool is like she's always about that. When she saw her brother at the bottom of the pool, she did not think for one second. What's going to happen to my hair? What's going to happen to my makeup? Am I going to ruin these clothes and the chlorine? Like, none of that crossed her mind. She saw her brother drowning at the bottom of the pool, and she dove in. Right? She dove in. So maybe you're not caught up in any grievous sins, right? Name them, whatever you want to call them. Maybe you're not caught up in any of those. But are you more concerned, metaphorically speaking, with the way that you look, your image, the things of this world, your status, whatever it is, all the while your brother and sister drowns. You're concerned about sharing the gospel with somebody because it might make you feel awkward. They're drowning. They're drowning. So maybe today the time is to repent, not of something that you are doing, but of something you are not and committing from this day forward through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be different. So if you need to repent, repentance looks a lot of different ways, but the goal is not to just be beaten down somehow by what you've done or not done. The goal is to surrender that and then move forward in new life, in a new way of doing things. You do tell that person about Jesus, even if it's super awkward. You do go through your closet And see, like, man, why do I have three winter coats when there's people that probably don't have one? And you're like, well, I need this one for—look, I get all the reasons. We live in Iowa, seasons, I get it. Okay? But I'm just saying, John the Baptist, they said, what does it look like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And he said, if you have two coats, someone has none, give them one. Really straightforward. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you don't need to go through your closet. Maybe you need to go through your checkbook, your bank account. I don't know. But what I do know is this. It's time to take Jesus seriously. Time to take him seriously. Time is now, it's not tomorrow. Let's not wait. Here at New Point Church, one of our four core values that we talk about in our foundations class is that we are driven by eternity. And that's really what all of this is about. But you, can't be, you cannot be driven by eternity. You cannot be driven by eternity and really say that unless you have a sense of urgency. You can't. Because you have to understand that eternity could come at any moment. And you don't have some crazy anxiety because of that. But what you do have is a sense of urgency. We live, I live, (laughs) with a singular goal in mind. Singular goal. Being driven by eternity means you live with a singular goal, and that's to pour it all out. Pour it all out. To use a sports analogy, leave nothing on the field. And that when you stand before Jesus, that he looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Tim, if you want to come up and just play quietly as I close here. I'm going to skip that final video, guys. We're driven by eternity. We have to cultivate a sense of urgency. We can't be caught up in civilian affairs. We've got to get rid of the stuff, the sin, the things, the cares of this world that so easily entangle us and choke out our destiny. Who we're called to be. If you want to skip ahead from this, this video to that next slide, two left. No fear. It's the thought for today no fear, no distractions. The ability to let that which does not matter truly slide. No fear, no distractions. The ability to let that, which does not matter, civilian affairs, truly slide. We're gonna do something a little different today as Tim just kind of strums the guitar. We've never, in my time here, we've had a couple different calls to prayer, mostly on our worship nights. When Mike and Dina were here, we obviously had a time of response. They facilitated, but this morning, we're gonna have a time of of prayer where I don't, it's not a um, raise your hand and I'll pray for you, which we do, and it's great. This is a come down front to the altar call. Come down front to the altar. You can kneel, you can stand, sit, you can do whatever you want, but it's time to come down as sort of, let this day be a marker where you say, today is the day where I repent of these things that are entangling me, of these things that have held me back, of these things, even if it's just my apathy, that I don't have a sense of urgency, that I just go through the motions, and I want to just live my life with no fear, no distractions. And I understand that seems a little bit Pollyanna, but the reality is through the Holy Spirit, you can grow in those areas in tremendous ways. My prayer as, as of late, this year at least, and I want to put it on the screen in case any of you just want to join me in this prayer goes back to a scripture I shared a few minutes ago but my prayer for a while now, one of the main ones, very simple it's a, a musician, an incredible song and she wrote a song about the parable of the bridegroom and the ten young women and her, her prayer in the song is this and go ahead and put that up she says, "Let there be oil in my lamp let the fire not go out when I hear the bridegroom come let me be ready let me have a sense of urgency let me be prepared. Let me clear the way for the coming of the Lord. And not just, not just his second coming, although that's a lot of what I've talked about today, but here and now in your life. He wants to come in here and now. So why don't you guys go ahead and stand with me as I pray? If you're somebody here in a second, I'll invite you down. Pastor Jordan and I, well, Pastor Jordan and Lindsay will be over here, and I'll be off to this side. If you want to come down and just be on your own, you are welcome to do that. If you want to come down and talk to one of us and receive prayer, you can do that. If you don't want any of that and you just want to sit and think for a little while longer, you can do that. If you don't want to do any of that, you can get your kids or be dismissed or whatever it is. But I don't want you to leave today having just missed everything I said and thinking out, I'll figure it out later. Let's not do that, okay? So in a minute here, after I pray and say amen, Tim's just gonna continue to play quietly. You can come down front, all the things I mentioned. If not, you can feel free to take off. I have nothing nothing more important than this today. I'll stay here till whatever time to pray with you. I know Pastor Jordan and Lindsay well as well. So don't feel like, oh man, there's a bunch of people. We'll hang out today is the day. Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room right now who just needs to prepare the way in their heart, in their lives, in their minds for your coming. Who says, I've been living in apathy. I've been living without a sense of urgency. I've allowed myself to become entangled. And for those who have never really received you, Jesus, they've truly received you, truly invited you into their life to come and consume all that they are. Pray for anybody here this morning. I pray that Holy Spirit, you would not let anyone who needs that leave this room. I pray that you'd be thick right now. Jesus, you are so worthy. We wanna have a sense of urgency. We wanna be driven by eternity. We don't want to leave anything left on the field. We wanna pour all out for you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.